Thanks, Eric. I hope you stay right there in Romans chapter 3. Um, if you're a visitor, even now you should probably be aware that we're in a series, a series of five sermons dealing with what have come to be known as the solas, S-O-L-A, just a Latin word for alone. And uh, we are in sermon number three this morning. Uh, Pastor Keith opened up with the first sola, and you are seeing right now on the screen just a little bit of an illustration of these solas and how they're pillars. They're pillars of truth upon which all that we believe about salvation rests. They're general and they're foundational. In one sense, these five pillars are more important than what some of us know as the five points of Calvinism, which should better be called the doctrines of grace because Calvin didn't discover those glorious truths about salvation. We believe in those five points. And we're not embarrassed or ashamed of them or apologetic about them. But they are the, shall I call it, the offspring of these five more foundational truths. Until you embrace the first pillar on the left, sola scriptura, you really won't come out with any great truths. But when we study the Word of God as the final authority on all that pertains to salvation and life, we discover that God is a sovereign God and that we are a depraved, helpless, hopeless, dead people. And we will discover as we study that that God's grace is the only thing that can recover us, that sovereign grace through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so forth. So I'm just reminding you that while the five points of Calvinism are, we believe, true and wonderful, these are more foundational truths. And yes, it is possible to hold to these five great pillars of truth and not be Calvinistic, obviously, because we have many friends in our own circle of friendship and in terms of denominations that are truly Christian who know that the three central pillars are true. Those are essential for salvation. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And there are many of our brothers and sisters who hold firmly to that. And that is, in fact, what makes them our brothers and sisters in Christ. So there they are. The Latin expression simply means only scripture, sola scriptura, only grace, sola gratia, only faith, sola fide, only Christ, solus Christus, and all of this resounds only and ultimately for the glory of God, soli deo gloria. But forget about the Latin, embrace this, Scripture alone is our final authority. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And I ask our friends in the 
angry room just to keep that up the whole time. I don't think it's going to be a distraction to you. And if you would like a copy of that, I, I would be happy to have this duplicated. You can just fold it and keep it in your Bible or put it somewhere where you might want to refer to from time to time. So that's the series we're in. And I just want to remind you that the Reformers, those great men like John Calvin and Martin Luther, Martin Luther preceded Calvin and John Knox and many, many others, were men raised up by God to rediscover and to reissue the truth about the gospel. Those men wrestled with big, big issues. And in one sense, those issues are still with us. They were focused on what is the final authority? Is it the Bible or the church? Or a combination of the Bible and the church? How are we saved? Are we saved by grace or by merit? By faith or by works? By Christ or by the sacraments? Or are we saved by a combination of all these things, which Romanism continues to teach? And they also wrestled with the big question of why. Why did God design salvation this way? And the honest and clear answer from Scripture is, for the glory of himself. Any other form of salvation would rob God of the complete, entire glory that he himself deserves. That's what the reformers were wrestling with at great cost. And so many of their followers paid the ultimate price of death for believing these things. The reformers were not really accepted. The Reformation really didn't immediately take place. They were excluded, literally excluded. But in time, by the blessing of God, truth prevailed. Many came to embrace these truths, first by the hundreds, then by the thousands. And Reformation swept all over Europe. And we sit here today as the recipients of the great truths of the Protestant Reformation. And we're just dusting these off and saying, don't ever forget about sola scriptura. The Bible alone is our authority. Don't ever forget that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Never forget that. We're just coming back to those great truths. And there's obviously a natural reason that is because on the 31st of this month, we will um, celebrate exactly 500 years since the day that Martin Luther himself went to the castle church of Wittenberg and nailed his 95 theses on the door. And as has been made clear, I think, from the outset of Pastor Keith's sermon, that was kind of a public bulletin board. Really, only people who cared about theology and philosophy would would go there to read that and interact. But what happened was a lot of Luther's disciples who had already come to understand the gospel went there and made copies of that. And soon thousands and thousands of copies of the 95 Theses made their way all over Germany and other countries in Europe. By the way, just, just an observation. You may be surprised to know that 
probably half of those 95 theses were seriously erroneous. <laughs> Just read all 95 of them. You have, if you understand the gospel, you will be discerning and say, Luther still believed that? Yes, he still believed that. Because you see, the process of reformation in his life is just like the process of reformation in our lives. None of us have it all. All of us are wrong about some things, including this poor preacher. This church is probably wrong about some things. We just need light from God and humility to be able to make corrections. No one has it all together. Luther certainly didn't. And he believed in many things that were still very, very Roman Catholic and not taught in the gospel. But those ones that were so true, how wonderful they were. And I would encourage you to just Google the 95 Theses and read them. It would probably take you 20 minutes to read all 95 of them. And you will be richly blessed and you, your discernment will also be tested. So that's just a little background with regard to these Solas, we're on number three. Next week, Keith Withrow will be coming to uh, preach Solus Christus, only Christ. And then, God willing, the following week, Thad Gunderson will come to deal with Soli Deo Gloria. And the series will then be completed. So it's my privilege this morning to uh, deal with Sola Fide or faith alone. And I want to put out a disclaimer immediately with regard to my sermon. Um, I want to uh, say to you that it is not going to be my purpose this morning to open up a whole theology on the subject of faith. But rather what I want to do is to focus on the significance and the concern of the reformers when they were using the words only faith. Much more can be said about faith than what was their primary concern at that time. I mean, I could take time to open up, you know, how faith is a gift from God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us who regenerates us and gives birth to faith and repentance. Or I could open up how wonderfully faith energizes us to be the people God has called us to be in the midst of even persecution. And we would be looking at Hebrews 11 again, that great hall of faith. Or perhaps we would consider how faith enable us to pray bold things. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. But I'm not dealing with those things. I'm wanting us to appreciate the concern, the primary, more focused concern of faith alone in the 16th century, in those years of the 1500s, and what the reformers were especially battling. Obviously, they were battling a view of faith that recognized its value, but insisted that it is not faith alone that justifies or saves us. It's faith plus. And so they had to face that issue and they went back to these passages of Scripture, one of them being the very one that Eric just read for us from Romans chapter 3. And by the grace of God and through divine illumination and insight given by God, 
the great truth that salvation is through faith alone was rediscovered. And especially, it was a great rediscovery for Martin Luther himself. So, could I just say this? Two of the books of the New Testament are given over almost entirely to defend these concepts of faith alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If your life depended on it, could you identify the two? You can say, well, that, I can identify one for sure because you've already directed us to Romans, so it has to be the book of Romans, and you'd be absolutely right. There's no book in the whole New Testament that is clearer about the doctrine of salvation than Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome. Would you know what the other book is? And I'm sure that several of you, if I called upon you to answer out loud, would say, it's Galatians. And you would be absolutely right. Those two books, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul, give us the truths that undid the darkness of Romanism and that gave birth to the Great Reformation. So <clears throat> what I want us to do now is um, take a look at this passage here in Romans chapter 3. And just, um, I'm going to kind of shift into maybe a bit of a teaching mode here for a moment and just make some observations. The first observation I want to make is that when you look at chapters 3, 4, and 5, um, and read them maybe two or three times, I don't know if you're like this, but this is, the, this is the way God has made my mind, I start seeing certain words that seem to be jumping out of the text. Particularly, they seem to be jumping out because they keep being repeated. And the two words that jump out of the three chapters that I just mentioned, we're not really going to be looking at chapters 4 and 5, the two words that keep jumping out are the words justified and faith. In fact, uh, I'm just looking, what I did is I circled them all in pencil, in which by, I, I do a lot of work in my Bible with pencil because I learned years ago that when I write in things that I'm sure I'm right about later, I find out I was wrong about that and I shouldn't have put that down. I was listening to a great sermon by one of my fellow pastors and he was completely erroneous on that subject. And so I, but I had it in ink. Just kidding, I'm only getting truth from my fellow pastors. But you've done that, haven't you? You've listened to certain teachings and you wrote it in your Bible. You thought, man, this is the greatest thing in the world. And then later you thought, man, I shouldn't have written that in ink because I don't even believe that anymore. So work with pencil uh, if you want to be really careful. But the things I'm telling you about today, you can do in ink. You can't be wrong about this. And you start seeing, not because it's me, but because they're in the text. You start seeing the word justified, justified, justifies, justice, and over and over, justification, over and over and over. In fact, you see it 12 times. And you see the word faith, almost exclusively the word faith, but occasionally the word believe and the word trust, 27 times in Romans 3, 4, and 5. Faith and justification. And you start saying, you know, there must be a critical relationship going on here. 
And you're going to see it right here in the passage that, again, Eric read for us. So let's just glance at it for a moment, starting with verse 21. Actually, why don't I just uh, take you for a moment to, cha to chapter 1, verse 16, and we'll get this out of the way, and then we'll stay in chapter 3. Chapter 16, Paul's announcing the great theme of his whole letter. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There you see the, the place of faith. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, what is the antecedent of it? I am not ashamed of the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I just want you to key on that phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. Because that's the way verse 21 of chapter 3 begins. Look at it. 321. But now, and I really think probably the apostle has in mind, as opposed to the whole period of the Old Testament, there was a revelation of the righteousness of God throughout the Old Testament. His holiness, His perfection, His hatred of sin, His determination to punish wickedness, the flood, and so on. We see the righteousness of God over and over and over in the Old Testament, but now we're going to see the righteousness of God in a new way with a different reference. So he says, but now... And really, I think you could almost insert, at least in your mind, now that Jesus Christ has come and lived a sinless life and died to pay for the sins of those who have violated the will of God and those who've been born again and trusted and looked upon Him, now for them, now in this age, the righteousness of God has been revealed, it has been manifested in a new and in a wonderful way. It's not just the holiness of God in general. It's, it's the righteousness that, of God that He gives to those who trust in Him. Now, I don't think it's just the imputed righteousness of God when Paul says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Because listen, what, was the righteous, what is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that, that has been imputed to us? I'm jumping ahead. I'm, I'm jumping into the doctrine of justification. I realize that. But we, we who trust in Christ have been made righteous. We've received the righteousness of Christ. What is that righteousness? I'll tell you what it is. It's a perfect holiness of life. The Lord Jesus Christ never once sinned in word, thought, and deed throughout the entirety of his life. He submitted to the whole law of God and never violated it ever. He was perfectly righteous. But what happened to him? A righteous God who loved sinners and determined to forgive them for their sins knew that their sins had to be paid for and that righteousness of God rained down like hell on Jesus while he hung on the cross for us so that we might have his righteousness put to our account. So what is it? Is it the righteousness of God in terms of his holiness and his perfection? Or is it just the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to us? It's all of that. It's both of those things. But in a new and a wonderful way, 
it had been it had been manifested in the coming of Jesus. And I must tell you that this is the thing that blew Luther away. This is the thing that that as he put it, literally opened the gates of paradise for him. Luther was a typical Roman Catholic monk. He labored to find a right standing with God, but in his heart he never felt that he could achieve it. He did many works of penance. He labored and labored and labored to find this righteousness and never had peace in his heart until the day with the help of the Holy Spirit, Romans 3.21 opened up for him and he began to see and he saw it. And he said to him, I've already said it, it was like the gates of paradise opened. He saw that he could have the righteousness of God. He could have the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at it again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's not about your holiness of life and your obedience to all of the law of God, although the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, bear witness to it. They were prophesying a righteousness to come. No, he says the righteousness of God through faith, not through the law, through faith. Faith in who? Faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, he sort of says the same thing twice. It's through faith for all who believe. And then he says this isn't just for Jewish believers, this is for Gentile believers. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So this is what Luther saw. This is what those who embraced the Reformed faith. And by the way, if you believe in sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, soli deo gloria, you're Reformed. That's what it means. That means you have embraced the great foundational truths of the Reformation. So what do we see then in this passage? We see in verse 22 that there is a righteousness that comes from God. But it comes through faith. Faith is the instrument by which it comes. But it isn't a blind faith. It's a focused faith. It's a faith in Jesus Christ. But it's not just a blind, general, abstract faith in Jesus Christ. It's in, uh, in Jesus Christ who came to redeem his people. Look at verse 24. I'll just go back to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That's one of the 12 uses of the word. Justified by his grace. That's what Pastor Mark preached about last Sunday through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So it looks like we've got sola fide, sola gratia, and solus Christus all wrapped up right here in this passage, and we do. We do. In fact, we have all five solas, because I've already pointed out to you in verse 21 that the that the law and the prophets have already spoken. Uh, script, scripture, it's sola scriptura. Paul based his beliefs 
on what the Bible taught and only what the Bible taught. So you got sola scriptura there. And then as we go a little further, we have sola gratia and sola fide and solus Christus. I better stick with the English. We've got only the Bible, only Christ, only by grace, only through faith. You say, well, what about the glory of God? Well, when you go a little further, and we'll see that in just a minute, well, I guess I'll just point it out to you now. In verse 27, it says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No. But by the law of faith. When we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to make us righteous and to pay for all of our sins, we know who gets the glory. And we can't boast. If salvation was by works, through keeping the law, we could boast. He said, look what I did. But you can't boast because you can't work for it. It's a gift. And it's a gift from God. So really all five solos are right here in this brief passage. So these are the things that we need to appreciate then. Um, it's a righteousness from God. It comes through faith. It's in Jesus Christ. It's a matter of grace. It's not based on works. It's a gift. Pastor Mark opened that up last week. Lord's Day from Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith, gratia, fide. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And that was made very clear. And this gift is called in this text justification. And it's based entirely on the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ who propitiated you see that in verse 25 that's a big word it's a it's a it's a theological concept but actually it's really quite simple it means satisfying the wrath of whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood God satisfies his own wrath by pouring it out on Jesus who bled and died for our sins the wrath we deserve was propitiated by Jesus Christ. And all of that is what brings us to this wonderful blessing of salvation and particularly the, the blessing that we call justification based upon the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what it is. What is justification? It is God pronouncing us perfectly righteous in spite of ourselves based upon the righteousness of Jesus which has been put to our account but the righteousness of a Jesus who had to die for our sins to pay for them. So we have two things from Jesus. We have an atonement for our sins and we have a perfect righteousness and that's why many of our hymns focus on those two words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We need a payment for our sins and we need a perfect righteousness. Do you understand that, children, young people? There's only two things you need in order to escape hell and in order to go to heaven. You need 
a payment for your sins unless you want to pay for your sins. You can pay for your own sins. You've heard me say that. The problem is you can never quit paying for them because the only way to pay for your sins is to go to hell. And if you go to hell, you're there forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So you'll never finish paying. But if you look outside of yourself, there is a payment that you can have. Jesus paid for the sins of those who would trust him. Those sins had to be punished. They were punished in a substitute, and it was him. It was Jesus. But when we come to Jesus, not only does he pay for our sins, we give him our sins, and he gives us something. Can we talk about the exchange, the great exchange, too much? I don't think so. Can I repeat this too often as a pastor? I don't think so. You give Jesus your sins, and before you can go away, he says, wait a minute, I have something for you. I give you my perfect record, my perfect righteousness, and I'm going to put it to your account. And when God the judge looks upon you, it will be as though you had never sinned. And that's why sometimes we define justified as justified, never sinned. It's being in a state before God which is justified, never sinned. Because the sins have been paid for and we're clothed in a perfect righteousness. So there's, there's the main passage. Now I just want to quickly go to a couple of more. I'll spend far less time on them. Um, I want you to turn with me to the Galatians passage. And even though there are many places in Galatians we could go, I'd like you just to see chapter 2 and verse 16. 2.16. Galatians 2.16. I'll start with verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We're, we're Jewish sinners. We're not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know, we know that a person is not justified by works. I should have really emphasized that back in the Romans 3 passage because again and again and again and again he says not of works, not of works, not of works. Not from the law, not from the law. Not by your obedience. You can't render a perfect obedience. Only one person rendered a perfect obedience to God's law. So he says we're not justified by works of the law but through faith. In Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. That's one verse. Can you believe how much is in verse 16? And again, Paul seems to want to say the same thing in different ways, but similarly, so it's like he's saying the same thing over and over. We're not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So there it is. Faith lays hold of Jesus Christ and his righteousness comes to us. And when God imputes, that's another big word, when he puts that to our account, we actually have it. It, it. it is ours. We are now made righteous, and then he declares us righteous. And that's called justification. It's God's pronouncement that we are righteous 
in his holy and perfect sight. So there's, there it is in Galatians. Now notice quickly Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. And something that Paul uh, labored for. And I, I would encourage you to make that your pursuit. It's hard to jump right into the middle of verse 9, but if you go back only four words, it says, five words, it says that I may, that I may gain Christ. Here's what I really want. There's a whole bunch of stuff I no longer count uh, valuable to me. I used to count it valuable. I, I had a lot of credentials. I put my trust in those credentials. I boasted in myself, but I've I've let go of all of them. I've repudiated them. I count them like manure because there's only one thing now I really want. I want Christ. And verse 9, and I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith there he goes with this repetition again and we've had it in three or four passages now so I think if I gave you a quiz and mom and dad I think you should talk to your kids about this at the at, at the noon meal today say so what was Pastor Ted talking about work from the general to particular and hopefully they'll say salvation what in what more particularly was he talking about? He was talking about, maybe someone will be old enough to say how we can be made right with God. What's that called? That's called justified. How do we get justified? What do we, what, what should we do? We must trust in Jesus. We must look to him. Can we be justified by keeping the law? Can we be justified by works? No. How can we be justified? By faith in Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do for us? He died to pay for our sins. What did he do before he died to pay for our sins? He lived a perfect and sinless life. He kept all of God's laws perfectly. So what happens when we look to Jesus and call upon him? He takes our sins and he gives us his righteousness and God says, you are justified. Go over that with your kids. Explain that to them over and over and over and help them to see the simple truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But today the focus is on through faith alone. What does a believing person do? He looks outside of himself. What does he contribute to the salvation? Nothing. Nothing. Faith is empty-handed, and I'm going to come back to those words in just a couple of moments. So there's Philippians 3, and finally, I would have you look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 for just a moment. All of this is designed to help us appreciate only faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21, another very favorite passage of mine. <clears throat> it goes... It's about reconciliation, but when you come to verse 21, it says, For our sake, 
he, and that is God the Father, made him, and that is God the Son, Jesus Christ. God made Jesus to be sin. I like those translations that reverse the order a little bit and put it like this. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's an amazing passage. God imputed something besides righteousness. In the case of Jesus, you know what he got imputed to him? Our sins. Our sins were put to his account. And God punished him. And that's what's symbolized in the Old Testament when the priest put his hands on the head of the scapegoat. It was designed to say all of the sins of the believing Israelites are transferred now to this goat. And then he had to sacrifice another goat in order to pay for those sins. And then that goat was led out into the wilderness to symbolize that our sins go out of God's sight. They can never be found again. But in a sense, that goat was made to be sin for the believing Israelite. But it was all symbolic of the ultimate sacrifice. It's when Jesus hung on the cross and as it were God put his holy wrathful just hands on his own son and made him imputed to him our sins and made him to be sin and had to turn his back from him and and cause Jesus to feel his divine abandonment so much so that he cried out my God my God why have you forsaken me the answer, of course, was because I had to make you sin in order to kill you, in order to curse you, in order to punish you so that our people could have an atonement and our people could believe upon you and be made righteous. But there it is. So, sola fide. Sola fide. We are made righteous only by and through the means of faith. And faith is just an instrument. That's all it is. So I, I'm just going to take one moment to uh, read for you a definition of justification. This comes from the Shorter Catechism. It says, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace. He's not obligated. Wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That was written in the 1600s. Here's what our confession says. It says, Those God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. He does this not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. He does this for Christ's sake alone and not for anything produced in them or done by them. And on it goes with beautiful words making this glorious doctrine so precious. You know, 
how important is the doctrine of justification by faith alone? I'll tell you how important Calvin thought it was. He described the doctrine of justification by faith alone as the, quote, principal hinge on which religion turns. And then he said this, and this is a verbatim quote, he said this in a debate with a certain cardinal. He said, quote, remove the knowledge of this doctrine and the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion is abolished, the church is destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. This one doctrine, justification by faith. How important was it to Luther? Many people know that he said this. He said it's the article by which the church stands or falls, but I didn't know he said what I'm about to read. He said, this article is the head and the cornerstone of the church, which alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, protects the church. Without it, the church of God cannot subsist one hour. That's what Luther said about justification by faith. And so this is really important. I hope you embrace this, this sola. I hope you embrace by faith alone. It's a very humbling grace because it means we don't have anything to contribute. Our faith is empty-handed. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a demand placed on you, including a time frame by which you were responsible to meet that demand, a demand which you were utterly incapable of meeting, and eventually you had to painfully and fearfully appear before the demander, and plead something like, I'm so sorry. I've tried to meet your reasonable demand, but in spite of all my efforts, I have come up empty-handed. My privilege this morning, brothers and sisters and children and young people, and particularly any of you who are here as an unbeliever who has not yet been converted, You've not yet been born again. You've not yet turned from your sins. You've not yet fled to the Lord Jesus Christ. My privilege is to tell you how all of us can comfortably, without fear and trembling, come before the ultimate and the most reasonable demander of all, God himself, and say in a way that is very pleasing to him, O holy and just God, this is a prayer I have written, O oh, holy and just God, you reasonably and rightfully demand of me a perfect righteousness. Not only do I lack a perfect righteousness, I have no righteousness at all. I'm nothing but unrighteousness. I deserve nothing but condemnation in hell. But do I not read in your blessed word Good news about an alien righteousness found in your blessed Son which can be put to my account and will thereby make me perfect in your sight? Since your word is infallibly true and reliable, I therefore plead for mercy based on His merit. Please, Heavenly Father, please apply the virtue of His atonement for sin to my guilty soul. 
for the sake of his blood. Please wash away all of my sins. Please transfer the righteousness of Jesus Christ to my account and allow me to stand acquitted before your throne. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died, that he died for me. Heavenly Father, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I come before you as an empty-handed beggar. Amen. And in the words of that great hymn, Rock of Ages, here is what every broken-hearted, repentant, but trusting sinner must say. Maybe you've already anticipated these words. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. But what is this dress Top Lady is speaking of? Ah, another hymn writer. Zinzendorf. I like his name. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf in the 1700s. He answers the question, what is this dress? Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Oh, let the dead now hear thy voice. Now bid thy banished ones rejoice. Their beauty this, their glorious dress, Jesus thy blood and righteousness. And let us go on to sing in the words of another wonderful hymn. These words, because this is what justifying faith enables us to sing. A debtor to mercy alone. By the way, these hymns are in our hymn book. And we are desiring to come back to some of the great hymns and to be singing them more frequently because their, their depth and maturity and richness are unequaled. This was my father's favorite hymn. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on my Pursing an offering, person and offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. And so I close with the words of one more hymn. I've never quoted so many hymns in a sermon. But I was blessed in reading through them this week. And may this be our confession and our perpetual resolve. The law is good, but since the fall, its holiness condemns us all. It dooms us for our sin to die. 
and has no power to justify. To Jesus we for refuge flee, who from the curse has set us free and humbly worship at his throne, saved by grace through faith alone. There the hymn writer put together, Solia, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide. Saved by His grace through faith alone. The Bible alone teaches us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And wouldn't it be sad if I preached a sermon on how faith is the empty-handed instrument that lays hold of Jesus Christ and results in eternal salvation and didn't plead with those of you who've never obtained that righteousness. Wouldn't that be sad? I beg of you, if you're an unbeliever, be humble enough to say to God, God, I am so unrighteous. I am so bad. I deserve to split hell wide open. But I thank you that there is a perfect righteousness available to me by the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ through a simple faith. Please, please, my friend, call upon the Lord Jesus today and experience justification. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. We who are Christians and uh, see more of our wickedness than we've ever seen before, and it seems to be growing because you're giving us greater insight into ourselves. We are comforted to know that at the end of the day, it's not about how much sanctification we've experienced. It's not about what we do for the church or in the church. It's not about our good works in the community. It's not about our obedience to your wonderful law. It's about Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Thank you for the provision. Help us to exercise faith. Grant us that faith that we may look away from ourselves to the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. As we pass the offering plate, let's stand and respond.
remember to sign up for the um, dinner on Wednesday nights. We're having a wonderful time of fellowshipping. Even if you can't stay uh, for the prayer time, we hope you will if you can. But even if you can't, it's a rich time of fellowship. We're so grateful for the efforts of all those who are laboring to, to help us enjoy this time together. So it starts at 5.30 every Wednesday. The meal is over by... Um, 6.15 so then then uh, the prayer time starts if, if you're able to stay so hope you'll sign up give them a feel for how many people are going to be there and now I leave you with this it's not exactly a benediction it's more of a doxology but may it be a blessing to us these are the words of Peter in 2 Peter the last verse it says to him be the glory Speaking of Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.